Hello, and welcome to Square in a Circle. On this episode, I'm joined by Colonel Retired John Antel, who has served 30 years in the U.S. Army and author of Seven Seconds to Die and Next War, as well as several other publications on leadership and the future of warfare. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. This content is for education and information purposes only. Well, good afternoon, sir. You know, thanks for being on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to the discussions on the changes to warfare, uh, the here and now, as well as uh, in the future. Uh, this is, you know, personally one of my favorite topics that I like to to discuss. You know, about revolutions in military affairs, as well as the changes in in the character of war. Um, and I think, you know, for for myself and my my peers, for force managers. Um, I think this is extremely important to study war, to understand where war is going, um, you know, to understand the changes in the character of war, because there are implications um, in force design as well as in, in resourcing of our army based off of those those changes. Um, and then last note for my listeners, a little plug in, you know, I, I highly encourage for those, you know, out there listening to, to go wherever you go to purchase uh, your books and pick up a copy of Seven Seconds to Die on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, as well as most recently, which I just completed over the holidays, uh, Next War, Reimagining How We Fight. Both are, are great reads um, and both will forever be on my, my bookshelf. Um, and then also there's quite a few videos out there for those that want more following this this conversation that I will uh, I'll include those links in, in the podcast of some YouTube videos um, that they give a little bit more on on the um, on what we're going to talk about here a little, a little deeper dive. Uh, that being said, sir, can I filibuster too much? I'll, I'll turn it over to you for any opening comments. Well, Matt, thank you very much for having me on your show. I really appreciate you and what you do. And I also appreciate you offering me time to talk to your listeners. My whole purpose in life is to develop leaders and inspire service, to develop leaders and inspire service. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I've given over 320 some presentations to U.S. military organizations and leaders at no cost, at no charge. So if anyone out there is has a unit that needs a leadership professional development session or wants to discuss the changing methods of war, if we can schedule it, I'm happy to do that. And you can contact me at uh, leadership77 at gmail.com. That's L-D-R-S-H-I-P-7-7 at gmail.com. So my, my whole purpose is to try to get us ready in time. I feel we are running out of time. I'm very concerned that the number of wars are cascading to the point where we're going to have a tipping point. We're going to be in a major conflict soon. Now, I hope it doesn't happen. But it would be smarter for us to prepare for it and to think that way than it would be to say it's never going to happen and be surprised. Imagine, for instance, if this was 1941. And let's say it was September or October of 1941. Now, the Japanese attack in December 19, December 7th, 1941. So you're just months away from that attack. You know, we don't have all the time in the world to do everything. We can't say that the war will start in 2030 or that it'll be in 2050. We need to be prepared today. The job of every military leader, every every soldier, sailor, airman, and Marine and Coast Guardsman in uniform is to deter the enemy from wanting to fight us and if that fails to win our nation's wars. 
Our challenge is, is that we have been fighting for many years against enemies that were not peer competitors. And we, although those battles and those, those um, uh, fights were all very important and worthy, we now are changing into a different, uh, bigger kind of conflict that we have to get ready for. This is a war for national survival. We could actually be in a war for national survival, unlike anything we've been in since World War II. And as strange as that sounds to Americans, it's because we are no longer the unipolar power. I mean, America was top dog when the Soviet Union fell. And since then, we've basically squandered that power. And now we're in a multipolar world where there are many enemies out there against us. There are four major adversaries that look to do us ill. Those, of course, you know. The Chinese are number one and most dangerous adversary. The Russians, although they're involved in Ukraine, don't count them out. Never count out the Russians. And they could do amazing things in Europe against us if they were so inclined. The North Koreans, which could go to war with us at any time. And of course, the Iranians. And then they have a bunch of proxies. All of those forces have proxies. And you see now we're in three major wars. Now you say, we're not at war. Well, wait a minute. Yes, we are. We have a hybrid war going on right now in Ukraine against Russia. We have a hybrid war going on against Iran in the Middle East, in Israel. We are supporting both Israel and Ukraine to the hilt with our support, with our weapon systems, with our money, with our expertise, with our intelligence systems. And now we're in a shooting war against the Houthi rebels in Yemen, proxies of Iran. So if there ever was a 1941 moment for you to wake up and say, wait a minute, I need to focus on war fighting. I need to focus my leadership and my energy on war fighting and get ready for this fight. I think it's now. Awesome. That's 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 a great opening there, sir. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I want to get into your your actual book, the the recent one, Next War: Reimagining How We Fight. So, how how do you see future war, sir? What does that look like? And I know that's a broad broad question, but you know, if you could kind of talk us through, you know, some of the highlights of of your book and where do you see future war going, sir? Right. The future of warfare, of course, is you know through a glass and darkly trying to figure out what the future of anything looks like is a difficult, if not impossible, task. No one knows what tomorrow will be like. But there are some ways that I've learned in, in my uh, experience that if you study history and you see where the trends are going, you can see how things are happening. So what I encourage everyone to do is to think independently. Ask the hard questions. Red team the situation. Play the enemy role and think through what might happen. Now, I believe from the study of recent wars, just the wars that have happened since 2020, there have been four major conflicts that we need to study. And if you're not studying these as a military professional, why not? Now, I had a discussion with a retired general officer not too long ago, and it was very disappointing. He was in command of a major element. And he told me that when he was in command, he was too busy to study war. I heard that and I was, I was taken aside. I just, I didn't know how to respond. 
To me, that's incredible. You always have to study what's going on. Leaders have to study war. Military leaders must understand the changing methods of warfare. Otherwise, what are we paying you for? You need to lead with foresight. And foresight is the ability to solve problems in the short term and create solutions for the long run. And you can't do that without some thinking and some, some deep analysis of what's happening. Now, the four wars that all of us need to be expert at, I mean study in depth, are first, the second, Nagorno-Karabakh War. Okay, most people can't even say Nagorno-Karabakh. The Nagorno-Karabakh War. The second Nagorno-Karabakh War. This was a war between Azerbaijan and Armenia in 2020. Why is this war important? This war was a 44-day campaign that ended in decisive victory for Azerbaijan. Decisive victory. When's the last time you've seen a decisive victory in any war? Hmm. That's worthy of study. It was a multi-domain joint campaign run by Azerbaijan. Now there are forces are smaller and yeah, they're in a small portion of the world and you know, they don't have global responsibilities, but isn't that worth studying as well? It was also a coalition war because they, they worked very closely with Turkey. And they were able to nullify Russia, which was the ally of Armenia. Russia didn't come in on Armenia's side. But most importantly, the second to go to Karabakh war was the first war in history to be won primarily by robotic systems. Whoa, what do you mean? One robotics, what, robotic systems? Yeah, this was the first time in history that we saw the massive use of unmanned aerial systems in such a way that it tipped the battle in favor of those who used them. Now, that may have been a one-off as some people thought, but I don't think so. And you can see that now in Ukraine and everywhere else. I was talking about the second Nagorno-Karabakh war for months before the Ukrainian, the Russians invaded Ukraine, before the Ukrainian war started. And everyone said, oh, well, Azerbaijan, Armenia, not really important. What's interesting is that the Europeans, in particular the Aust Austrian Defense uh, Academy, did a study of the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, and they said that most NATO nations could not have beaten Azerbaijan. Now, there's no doubt that huh. NATO could beat Azerbaijan, but what they were talking about is, you know, the individual NATO nations of NATO, had they deployed, had they been there, they would have been up against a completely different situation than they were prepared to fight. So in 2020, not many people were ready for the drone revolution that occurred. Now the next war we need to study in depth, which is ongoing, is the Russia-Ukrainian war. There are so many facets of this war that require us to think and study and learn from. There are many, so many resources out there that you should be able to get daily information on this. And you should be studying what's happening because the ebb and flow of the war in Ukraine is the future of war. Almost all wars end up not being decisive and fast. They end up being lengthy and bloody. I mean, just look through any war that you could think of. The American Revolution, the British thought they would finish it in a couple weeks. Not quite. You know, the Civil War, that would be over in months, right? No, no way. World War One. That was going to be done in 1914, a couple of weeks. That didn't happen either. Now, 
World War II, once the Americans got involved, a bit of an exception in the fact that we were able to do some things because the enemy had been, had been pretty much, the Germans had been pretty much fighting on the whole world by that point. Uh, but our experience in World War II is kind of an aberration of decisive maneuver in all this. Wars end up going into trench warfare very often, very often, in every age. So we have to think through what is going on in Ukraine and figure out how not to have that happen to us. For instance, in this last offensive that the Ukrainians launched, the summer offensive, it failed. We taught them how to breach minefields and breach enemy obstacles and fight in the old way. And they died in the old way. We really should not have pushed them to attack. They had just built up an army. We forget how fragile building up armies are. But anyway, there's so much that we can learn from the Russo-Ukrainian War. And I'll talk about some of those as we go through this. The next war that we need to study is the is the 2021 uh, uh, Israeli Hamas war that involved a very short 11-day period where the Israelis were able to use a their artificial intelligence in such a way as to create a near kill web and I'll talk about a kill web a little bit later but everyone understands what a kill chain is but a kill web is different. It's a kill, a kill web is an AI-enabled kill chain, basically. So if you can sense and strike and you can put all this intelligence data together almost in real time and you can respond in real time, you have a tremendous advantage. So that war was one of the first wars in history to be won primarily by artificial intelligence, and the Israeli said so. And uh, they have a lot to back that up. So it's worthy of study. Now, then you go, well, heck. It didn't help them much because look what just happened on October 7th. You know, Hamas attacked. So well, how come that happened? Well, people adapt. You know, they, they improvise. They overcome. They, they figured out what they needed to do. And they applied new thinking to an older problem. And the Israelis and their hubris and, and many other reasons had most of their people not at work that day. I mean, Unit 8200, which I talk about in Next War, which was so valuable in the in the Israeli-Hamas War of 2021, most of those guys had been sent home and said, don't work on weekends, we can't afford you. So there's a lot of silly things that were happening right before that attack, and the Israelis will go through that and learn from it. But right now what we're watching is the Israelis conduct urban operations in a way that hardly any other army in the world could do, any other military force in the world could do. Their ability to use sense and strike their ability to see something in real time and then get munitions on target, that coordination of ground, air, sea, intelligence, everything is tremendous. Their ability to fight in the dense urban areas of Gaza, incredible. The fact that the civilian casualty collateral damage has been so low is astounding. People don't recognize this. Imagine if the Russians had decided to take down Gaza if they were in Israel and they were going to take down Gaza, there wouldn't be anything alive. It'd be just leveled. Right. We did the same thing in World War II. When we went into a major city, we basically flattened it and we killed everybody that we could. In World War II, we bombed cities, Dresden, other cities, Hamburg. We bombed those cities with civilians in them 
and we didn't worry about giving them uh, humanitarian resources while we were fighting to defeat them. So Israel is being held to an extremely bizarre standard, and they're doing a very good job of keeping the collateral damage down. Now, every civilian that is killed and every child that dies is a tragedy, but war is evil and it's bad. And Hamas started the war. And over 1,200 Israelis were slaughtered. You know, over 4,800 were wounded in just that first attack on October 7th. So for the Israelis, this is uh, a 911 on steroids event. It is, a, it is something that it, some people can't wrap their heads around. It is amazing. But if you support a terrorist organization that, that believes in, in autocracy, that believes in, in, in taking hostages, that believes in rape and, and, and murder, well, you've got Hamas. And if you believe in Israel, which is a democracy that's trying to work things out in this very difficult neighborhood, well, then you've got Israel. And right now, if you, if you study what the IDF is doing, the American army, the American military can learn a tremendous amount about how to fight in difficult situations. One of the things, one of the lessons um, is, for instance, that the information war is war. You lose the information war, you lose the war. So you cannot afford to lose the information war. Therefore, they're fighting in The Hague. Therefore, they're, they're on uh, the news broadcasts and everything else. And, of course, you see Hamas doing everything they can to win the information war. So this is very important and very interesting to watch. My, my main thrust, the main thing that I could offer your listeners is this. We need to study these wars and learn from them so that we can have foresight to win or to deter our enemies or win the fight when it comes. Yes, sir. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'd like to go back to the the first war that we should study, the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict. And there's a lot of lessons that are that, that came out of the, out of that conflict. But what are like the, the top lessons that that you identified, sir? That 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 speak to you that you know you would highlight out of, out of that conflict, sir? Right. No, I, I agree. That what ha- what what I did was I looked at these wars, all four of them but particularly starting off with the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, and I came up with a list of disruptors. These disruptors are important to understand for how war is fought today. Now, these disruptors may not uh, be viable 50 years from now because new things will happen, but right now these things are very important and they change our traditional way of war. So what are those nine disruptors? The first one is the transparent battle space. The transparent battle space you see now in Ukraine, you see now in in Gaza. Of course, you saw this during the uh, Second Nagorno-Karabakh War. And the, the idea is that from satellites all the way down to robotic systems on the ground and soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines using their eyeballs, everything can be seen. There are so many layered sensors now that anything that you want to see really badly, you can put the assets into the area to find it. And in most cases, those battle spaces like in Ukraine are totally transparent. When the Russians begin to move forward in Avdivka and other places, their tank columns are seen almost immediately. Once you're seen, then you can be sensed. 
you know, once you're seen, once you're seen and you are sensed, then you can be struck. And if you're hit with the weapon systems we have now, the precision weapon systems we have now, you're dead. And that's our challenge. In the past, they couldn't see you very well. And if they did figure you were somewhere, they fired a bunch of dumb stuff at you. And it took thousands of rounds and maybe it killed a few of you. But now they see you, they sense you, they strike you, they kill you. Period. So the transparent battle space is one of those disruptors. Very important. It changes everything. You want to know why the Ukrainians had trouble breaking through this summer? How do you mass in a transparent battle space where precision weaponry will take you down whenever you get four or five vehicles together? So how do you mass in the modern battle space? Anything. In sea, in the air, on the ground. Now, there's differences in the air and the sea, of course, but on the ground, you've got to move across the two-dimensional space. So to be able to break through, you've got to mass. But if you try to mass, you're going to be a major target for um, uh, indirect precision fires. Now, the second disruptor is the first strike advantage. This disruptor is crucial for us to understand. We are not going to attack China. We're not going to launch a missile strike on Russia. We're not going to launch bombers against North Korea in a surprise first strike attack. But all of those countries could launch a first strike surprise attack against us. So again, imagine Pearl Harbor. Only imagine it now in Korea, in the Pacific, and in Europe, and in the Middle East. Now, We've never had so many enemies working so closely together before. Our strategy has always been to disrupt their alliances. Pretty smart strategy. But leadership matters. And right now, we're not doing it. So for whatever reasons, we have too many people out there who are aligning against us to fight us. If they were to launch a first strike together, or even if just one of them was to launch a first strike, would we be ready? Now... We know this is a strategy of dictatorships. If you study history, you'll see that autocratic governments have started wars without, without you know, declaring war and striking with the first strike. Hitler attacks Russia, Operation Barbarossa. Japan strikes the United States, Pearl Harbor. The North Koreans, are, we're fighting in Korea, the Chinese attack us. I mean, in a surprise. Now, we're surprised a little too often here. You know, we were surprised at 911. We were surprised at uh, Afghanistan. We're getting a little surprised too often here. So our challenge is this. If the enemy's going to do a first strike advantage, how do we prepare for that? You can't prepare for it after the fact. So you got to start thinking now about it. So just a simple thing. In our war games that we do constantly, should we start at a 25% loss of forces? Because the enemy struck us first. And then what are we doing to mitigate that? So if you look at our forces right now deployed around the world, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, I mean, Navy ships are, you know, deployed in combat formations because they're combat ships. Their ports are not. That's why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. I had a naval captain tell me that the Japanese, well, the Chinese could not attack Pearl Harbor. Too far away. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, in 1941, 
The Japanese could attack Pearl Harbor. Why couldn't the Chinese in, in, in 2024 attack Pearl Harbor? Of course they could. Yeah. But the point is, is that we need to make ourselves harder to kill. So if you look at where we are, on Guam, have we hardened the positions? Do we have bunkers for people? Are the command and control facilities protected? You know, not as well as they should be. What about Pearl Harbor? What about across the Pacific? Where do our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines live? They live in barracks, civilian, I mean, peacetime barracks. So we're in all these soft places, in Romania, in Poland, in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, our troops live in peacetime barracks. So if the enemy ever wants to do a first strike on us, two o'clock in the morning, the missiles start to fall, what are we going to do? Our military is fragile. We, are, we know that people are our greatest resource. How long does it take to train a master sergeant? How long does it take to train a major? We can kill all those guys, kill all those guys in their beds. Now the professional military is pretty much decimated. Mm -hmm. So the first strike advantage is huge. In Korea, for instance, we have consolidated most of our forces in one place in the center of Korea at one camp. And the North Koreans know exactly where that camp is down to the millimeter. And if they wanted to hit us with missiles, we would be in, we would be in peacetime barracks. So you see the, the problem that we have with the first strike advantage. If the enemy wants to do a first strike advantage, it could be devastating. If they coordinated it amongst all of them, well, it could be war winning. What are we doing now, right now, to mitigate that? That is a leadership challenge. And if we don't start doing something, we are going to be criminally negligent, just as they were at Pearl Harbor. The next is AI and the Temple of War. I was honored just recently to go to the Senate uh, at their AI symposium and brief senators and others on the military applications of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is simply how we use our machines to get things done, but they're getting smarter and smarter. There are three different types of artificial intelligence. There's artificial narrow intelligence that we use now you know, Excel spreadsheet kind of stuff, you know, magnified. There's artificial general intelligence, which is equal to the decision-making capabilities of a human being. And we're pressing the envelope on getting there now. In fact, some people say that we will have AGI within months or maybe a year, which is kind of um, uh, frightening. That's, that's, yeah, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the next step is artificial superintelligence, which is when Enough AGIs get together to create their own intelligence, and it's so smart that, that we can't even understand it. Now, don't know if any of that will happen. AGI may not ever happen, but uh, more than likely, all the experts seem to think it will, and they're saying that it's going to happen very soon. So the leader in AGI will lead the world. If we do not become the leader of AGI, of artificial general intelligence, then if our enemies do, the Chinese or the Russians or someone, and the Chinese are close, then um, we'll be at a great disadvantage, a great disadvantage. And, um, and that could be a complete um, uh, watershed for the world. So we have to be leading in that arena. 
And if we're, I mean, who would you rather have lead in that arena? For instance, we had the nuclear weapon first. We developed the atomic bomb first. And we were able, with the way that we believe in our ethics and our morality, for all the people who say that we have, you know, all these problems, we did not use those nuclear weapons again, but to end World War II. Imagine if Stalin had had the nuclear weapon and no one else. Imagine if Hitler had had a nuclear weapon and no one else, or Imperial Japan. What would the world look like today? And how many bombs would have gone off? So with AGI, we need to be leading. The next disruptor, the fourth disruptor, is top attack. As you can see now in video after video, the way you destroy equipment and things on the battle space is from the top. Munitions, precision munitions that are sensed by uh, layered sensors that go all the way up to satellites that can see where exactly the object is, even as it's moving, you hit that target and you destroy it from the top. That is why tanks now have roofs over them with slat armor. Mm -hmm. And we laugh at this, but we should think twice about it because the slat armor thing makes sense in so many ways. And as a tanker, I will tell you that, that putting a roof over my tank seems contrary to everything I've ever understood about tank warfare, but it makes an awful lot of sense if you consider warfare today, not yesterday. The Israelis do it. Oh, wait a minute. The Israelis do it? Not just the Russians? How about that? Yeah, the Ukrainians do it too. And why? Well, there's a lot of good reasons. Small munitions, it protects you from. It won't stop artillery or a hellfire or, or a, um, a, a tandem warhead by any means. But one of the things that happens is that after a vehicle is hit, the crew abandons the tank. Mm -hmm. And very few of them shut the hatch and lock it up because they're like trying to escape with their lives, you know, because the tank's going to blow up. So what you do to clean the battlefield up after the fight is you send your small UAS with a little grenade and they go right up to the top of the catch that's open and you drop a grenade. In. A grenade. Mm -hmm. And that causes the fire, which burns up the ammo, throws the blows the hatch, you know, blows all the stuff up. And particularly in a Russian tank, turret goes 50 feet in the air. So there's a lot of reasons to think about this top attack, both the active, passive and, and other means to protect against top attack. The fifth... Um, disruptor is fully autonomous. More and more weapons today are going to be fully autonomous. We say, well, we don't have any autonomous weapons. And of course, that's not true. We have autonomous weapons. You know them. I mean, can you mention a few? The phalanx, for instance, on a ship. Yeah. Close in defense weapon system. The Patriot missile system has an automatic mode. Other systems, the CRAM has an automatic mode, which is a shoots down artillery shell. Why? Because they have to fire faster than human cognition. You could name a CRAM and shoot it fast enough as a human. You know, it has to see the target immediately and just zip away. Now, it runs out of ammo pretty fast, so you can't use CRAMs for everything. And if you don't know what a CRAM is, for those of us listeners out there, it is a uh, defensive system that is that is a fast automatic cannon that is computer controlled, radar controlled, sees the uh, mortar round coming in and actually can shoot down mortar rounds coming from the ground. Similar to like Iron Dome is able to shoot down missiles. So those are automatic. Iron Dome is automatic. So our, and the Iron Dome is what the Israelis use to defend Israel. So more and more weapons are becoming fully autonomous, particularly in the drone arena. So for instance, small UAS are getting much more difficult to jam. You used to be able to take a radar gun, I'm not a, it's a, a, a EW gun, electronic warfare jammer, and shoot this, this 
this signal basically at the drone, at the small UAS, and it would knock out the signal that it's trying to receive from the GPS, and therefore it would it would panic and it would just fall to the ground. That's harder and harder to do these days, because you can arm you can arm these small UAS with multiple systems to navigate. So if GPS goes out, they use something else. Now in Ukraine, what we found was that it only takes four loitering munitions to overwhelm almost any system. So if you want to overwhelm an enemy radar that's being defended, hmm. a CP, uh, a ammo dump, anything, you drop four loitering munitions at it, one of them is going to get through. You drop eight, well, four of them will get through. I mean, it's not a mathematical certainty, but that's relatively the odds. So therefore, this whole fully autonomous thing becomes very interesting because eventually what you're going to get is the next disruptor, the sixth disruptor in my list, which is I call the super swarm. Now, swarming is a tactic. Custer was swarmed at the Little Bighorn. Yeah, you don't want to be Custer. Mm. Swarming is a tactic. It means you attack people from different angles all at once and different things, and they overwhelm their ability to fight back. But a super swarm is totally different. A super swarm is an AI-enabled cloud or group or swarm of unmanned systems. So it could be a a uh, hundred ground systems all driving at you and blowing up. I mean, imagine, you know, the size of a, of a toy robotic car that each had, you know, a block of TNT on it and it's coming at you and they're just blowing up. How would you fight it? I mean, you could shoot a few, but eventually you're, you know, you're going to miss and you're going to run out of ammo and it's going to take you over. The swarm enabled by an AI would be a cloud of systems that would move from point A to point B to point C as directed by one human, only one human. And each one of those systems would have different capabilities to attack, and they would attack appropriately to their capabilities against the appropriate target. And we can do this. This is where we're headed. So imagine the super swarm starts to come through and you want to make a breakthrough like in Ukraine and you're killing everything underneath it. And then you move on to the artillery and everything else in the command posts until they're totally attrited, and then you get another one. That's where warfare is headed, the super swarm. Now, that requires communications, you know, uh, set up. It requires smart systems. It requires control. Uh, but we are working on those things. We have done these things to small degrees. We have never, ever used them in combat yet, and no one has used a super swarm in combat, but you will see it sometime soon. Now, the next, the seventh, is the kill web, and I mentioned the kill web a little bit earlier. The kill web is not uh, the kill chain. We use a kill chain today, and the kill chain is a logical step of procedures with humans in most of those steps saying, I got the target, here it is, it's enemy, I agree to shoot it, do you agree to shoot it, yes, we agree to shoot it, okay, joint guy, you got it, missile, you got it, you fire, it goes. So all of those things happen to a certain degree or shorter, depending on what the kill chain is, because every system has a kill chain. For instance, a mortar has a kill chain, a predator has a kill chain, a nuclear weapon mm -hmm. has a kill chain, it's a little different, but I'm just saying that there's a kill chain involved there, when you think about this logically. So we should know, by the way, the kill chains of our enemies. If you wanted to defeat the enemy's kill chain, one of the things you might ask is, what are the steps in that kill chain? 
when I ask this of artillerymen and air defenders and, and soldiers in particular, and even airmen and, and sailors and Marines, <laughs> I say, what, is, what are the steps of a, of a Chinese kill chain for their 152 millimeter mortar or 152 millimeter howitzer? And they go, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it would be something that we could figure out. No idea. And then if you <laughs> wanted to attack that kill chain, you could, in fact, disrupt it at the right spot if you could, or at least you'd know how to disrupt it better. And we need to know our own. But that's a kill chain. And that actually takes, you know, sometimes minutes to do. Some kill chains can be faster, but it takes time. A kill web is totally different. A kill web synchronizes all this with artificial intelligence. So not a good, not a, a, a direct uh, uh, analogy, but close to give you an idea. Imagine an Excel spreadsheet. And on one column of the Excel spreadsheet is mm -hmm. every target that is seen by some sensor and verified by that sensor. So you know it's there. And you know what the target is. And the next column is every weapon system that can kill that target automatically lined up with it because the AI can do that. So if you've got a, a missile at sea that can take out target A, that's what they, the AI has decided to do. And it will, it will maximize the best target to, to a weapon system to target. And then the next column is how do you want to execute? All at once, one at a time, one every day. I mean, what do you want to do? So imagine that kill web and imagine that in a first strike. That's why the Chinese are working so diligently on developing their kill web. Because if you can use the first, because see, this is fragile. The kill web will only last as long as your sensors and shooters are well synchronized and your AI is working and all that. It would work very well in a first strike. I mean, it would work much better in a first strike than it would during the chaos of impending all sorts of other battles. So there's a danger there. Just imagine. The next um, uh, disruptor is to visualize the battle space. Now, this is a disruptor because we cannot do this right now very well. We talk a good game about common operational picture, but we don't really have one. Think about the common operational picture from the, oh, let's just say platoon level to the core level. Well, there isn't one. Mm -hmm. um, we could. We're developing technology now that make it. I mean, you can just imagine simply the new mission command systems that we have lay out certain things that should be common all the way up. But they're not really yet. And in many cases, we're working on paper maps. I know this because I was just at the National Training Center watching Armored Brigade combat teams fight and also at 29 Palms watching the U.S. Marine Corps fight. And they're talking about maps with, with pins pushing in on the map. Now, they have digital backup. Actually, they were using, you should see the map as a backup. But the problem was the digital screens for them didn't work as well in briefing a big group because they had these larger headquarters. So the challenge that we have is, is to think differently. And visualizing the battle space is really important. And we have some new technological means to do this, but we're really slow in adopting it. So for instance, the US Army has developed a system called IVIS. And IVIS is going to make infantrymen into Iron Man, basically. He's going to have this capability to, to see and shoot and, and, and coordinate and do all these other things. In most cases, the infantrymen are having a hard time working with this because they're overtaking the infantry in many ways. 
infantry is a tough job as it is. You put a visor on me and you want me to fight like an Imperial stormtrooper. Well, it better really give me, it better really give me some advantages. And right now it's a little kludgy and it's tough. However, the center core piece of that thing is a, is a Microsoft HoloLens. Now, if you've ever used a Microsoft HoloLens, and I used to work in the high-tech industry and the video game industry that we, we use these, you can do amazing things. Visualization is incredible. So imagine if we were going to visualize the battle space and we maximized these IVIS systems with the HoloLens as the core of it for command and control. If you ditch all of the screens, imagine how small your headquarters could be. You've seen these headquarters. You know, mm -hmm. the target that sticks out gets hammered. Yeah. The target that sticks out gets hammered. In Ukraine, over four vehicles, you're going to get hammered. Over four vehicles. What that means is that, and I'm writing a, um, uh, a paper called the 21 Maxims of, uh, of Mission Command, Command Post Setup. You know, basically, it's all about uh, rules for CPs and how we should create a, a, uh, a distributed mm -hmm. mesh command post arrangement for our tactical forces and all the way up to core, no more than four vehicles together. Well, when I tell people that they, their heads explode because they want to put everybody into the circus tent. And, but they're only gonna do that once because yeah, after yeah. they're killed, reconstituting that headquarters is going to be near impossible. And tents don't protect you from small loitering munitions. And stationary means death. And no protection stationary means death. So we really have to think this through. So visualizing the battle space is a key element in our ability to fight 21st century warfare. Because we're no there there is no place that is safe. There is no sanctuary. You are always under the enemy's guns. And you're always under their observation. We get off at the port anywhere in the Pacific or in Europe. You get off in Amsterdam or someplace. They'll know you're there. They'll watch your column move all the way to Latvia. They can hit you anywhere along that line. They'll be able to count everything on your vehicles, including your bumper numbers. We have a transparent battle space now. So it's very deadly. So visualizing the battle space. And then the last one, the ninth one, is decision dominance. Now, this is pretty doctrinal. The decision dominance idea is something that the army is uh, is embracing. The idea being that you should be able to make decisions, <clears throat> and see the situation, understand the situation, decide and act faster than the enemy, so fast that it's as if he's standing still and you're kicking and hitting him, you know, multiple times. That's decision dominance. We need to have more case studies of how to develop decision dominance. And I believe that if you put all of these things together and start to mitigate some of the problems and maximize some of the advantages, then you get decision dominance. So you see, you won't have decision dominance if you don't understand the transparent battle space. You won't get decision dominance if you don't understand mm -hmm. the first strike advantage. Because the first strike advantage is going to knock us for a loop. If we recover, we'll be lucky. You know, all of these things then add up into decision dominance. And one of the major um, uh, elements that, that came out of this whole study of mine was that we need to embrace the concept of masking. Masking is not a doctrinal term, and it's not camouflage, although camouflage is a part of masking. Masking is the full spectrum 
I mean, use everything you got. Multi-domain, across all domains. The full spectrum, multi-domain effort to deceive enemy sensors and disrupt their targeting. Deceive their sensors. What can we do to deceive the enemy sensors? Because if their sensors show us someplace where we are not, we're safe. And then disrupt their targeting. So when they're targeting, when they do come in with their precision weapons, what if they miss? What if every time they fired a precision weapon, it was, you know, a kilometer off? Wouldn't that be great? So deceive their sensors, disrupt their targeting. So it's a focused concept to get people to think about how to counter the enemy. Not just say, God, I hope he doesn't hit us, or I hope he doesn't see us. We've got to figure this out. So the full spectrum, multi-domain effort to deceive their sensors and disrupt their targeting. And we need to then make our plans accordingly. How are we deceiving our sensors? Commander should ask that. What are we doing to deceive their sensors? Well, sir, we're not doing anything. Not a good answer. Okay, what is a good answer? Well, we don't have much to do to deceive their sensors with, sir. They see us all the time. Well, yes, you can deceive their sensors. How about decoys? Decoys, sir? Decoys? Yes. Every unit should put out decoys. We don't have any decoys. My God, I'm going to strangle you. What do you mean you don't have any decoys? Make them. Come up with something. I mean, our enemies do. I mean, if you want to hide from the enemy, you figure something out. We've got to start using our, our brains to figure this out. Decoys. What could an infantry platoon do to set up decoys? Okay. They could take E-type silhouettes. Okay. Some per person I was talking to the other day said, sir, what's an E-type silhouette? Okay. That's the targeted range. <clears throat> you know, the, 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 uh, the targets we use uh, for M16 for pistol training. Take a target and get some sticks and mm -hmm. put them up on your left flank. 200 meters from your position. Now, in the dark, the enemy might think that's somebody to shoot at. That could save your life. Mm -hmm. What if you took the thermal yeah. blankets that we use on some of our tank ranges and other ranges so that we can use our night vision goggles to see these, these targets, so we can use our thermal sights to see these targets? And they only take a battery you know, a 12 volt battery or something to get them to warm up. So you get the battery pack and you lay this thing out on the ground and it looks like a vehicle. Well, a drone flying above ain't that smart. And it might just hit that target. And if that's a decoy you can use, you can pack it up and put it in your pack. And of course, there's many, many other things, smudge pots, all sorts of other things. We've got to start using our brains to figure out how to put decoys up. If everyone put up decoys all the time and only 10% of the enemy drones hit those decoys, that's 10% of the forces we've saved. You know, so we've got to start thinking mm -hmm. that way. And also we've got to start thinking of how that's we true. can get more protection. So our command posts, for instance, are extremely vulnerable. We're changing. We're thinking how we're changing. There's a lot of good work being done on this, but it isn't being done fast enough. And everybody says, well, you can't do it fast. Well, I got that, but our problem is we're running out of time. And we have a whole bunch of stuff in the system that won't work. Tents, we cannot be in tents anymore. You cannot have a CP with tents, even if they're beautiful, brand new, sick ups with all these things, with all these you know, windows and everything. You can't do that. 
they're going to get you killed. You maximize your brain power in one target set, and it's going to be destroyed. And you see it in Ukraine. The Russian CPs, the Ukrainian CPs, they have all dispersed. They have gone to ground. They have massed. They have figured out how to stay away from the sensors, or they're dead. And they get dead almost every week because it's that hard. Again, how hard does it take? How much time will it take? How difficult will it be to reconstitute a brigade command post with all the brain power? How much will it do for a battalion, for a division, for a corps, for an army? You know, there are no sanctuaries. Let's start thinking that way and we'll be better off instead of hoping that they won't find us or they won't hit us. So our command posts have to be armored. They have to be mobile because a moving target's harder to hit. You can hit moving targets for sure, but it's easier to hit a stationary target than it is to hit a moving target, period. So if you're armored and mobile and you can operate on the move, you have a great advantage. We've been talking about mission command on the move for decades. It's time to do it. Just do it. It can be done. So we have got to figure out how to use the existing equipment that we have to its maximum potential. Now, some units say, well, I don't have any uh, command and control armored vehicles that I could use for my command posts. Make them. Find an armored vehicle and redesign the inside best you can and put in the mission command systems that you can, that you have, and work from there. It can be done. It happens in every war. So let's not wait for the war to start doing it. And... The other thing is, is they say, well, I don't have any armor. Well, get something. You know, even a, even an, an armored Humvee, even a JLTV, something that is better than walking around with cotton shirt. Because artillery kills. 90% of the casualties are from fragments from artillery and bombs. You're going to die if you don't have some armor. Or you got to dig in. And how many soldiers know how to dig in? Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Now, sailors don't have to dig in on a ship. I got it. But they're not always on a ship, and oftentimes they're in, they're in a port. You know, they're on, they're on uh, land duty. You know, same with airmen. If you ask an airman to dig a foxhole, what's he going to tell you? Not his job. He doesn't know how to do it. Right. And when the artillery starts to fall, what's going to happen? He's going to wish he knew how to dig a foxhole. Yeah. And so the leader in charge has let him down. Mm -hmm. The leader in charge is criminally negligent. Most soldiers haven't dug foxholes in years. Nobody knows how to dig a really good fighting position anymore. And hardly anybody knows how to dig a trench. Trenches, we don't use trenches anymore. Let me tell you what. The one thing about the Ukrainians that was amazing, they would come to a piece of ground. And within hours to a day, they would have turned that ground into a trench line system and they were a hard nut to crack. They were harder to kill. And that's what we have to be. We have to be harder to kill. We are too easy to kill right now. So those are the nine disruptors that I've developed from the um, study of those four wars that I discussed. And of course, now we're going to add the Red Sea fight, mm -hmm. which is going on. So there are five wars. And um, there are lessons coming out from that as well mostly in the sense and strike and masking arena.
So, sir, I mean, there's a lot, lot to unpack there, but, um, and, and you've gone to CTC rotations and, and presented at PME and, and, and you said, you know, over, over 300 presentations and, you know, just with, you know, your, your publications, your books, um, your observations that, you know, you've laid out, are you starting to see any changes in the army or any other services or is it too soon to, too soon to tell? Yeah, don't don't get me wrong. I do not have all the answers. I just like to ask the hard questions. We have great soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines out there, good leaders who are trying to do the right thing. However, too many of the junior leaders I talk to, Colonel below Colonel, tell me that they cannot do things, that they cannot find the time to, to in their training schedule, that they cannot get the resources, that they cannot get the focus. Now, I reply, don't tell me what you can't do. Tell me what you can do. Mm. Now, you train in constructive, virtual, and live simulation all the time. Everything we do is constructive, virtual, or live. Constructive training involves things like map exercises, uh, uh, thought experiments, uh, walking through skills uh, you know, on a chalkboard, uh, using your brain, and having a, a session of, of your team together to talk through what to do. A lot of this can be handled with constructive training as a beginning. It doesn't mean that you're ready. We do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. We fall to the level of our training. And if our training level is zero, we are a zero. No matter how you feel about it, your feelings don't matter. I know that's shocking. But your feelings don't matter. It's whether you're trained. And when it comes to a team, it's whether the team's trained. So our challenge is, is that if we're, for instance, talking about the counter UAS fight, okay, go to any organization that says, and go to, if you're a platoon leader, if you're a company commander, if you're in charge of the tactical operations center, a command post, if you're, if you're in charge of a, of a logistics uh, set up a, a combat support uh, service battalion set up or something. Ask those leaders, what are your battle drills to fight UAS, unmanned aerial systems? Mm -hmm. If there's a pause and there's no answer, that leader is criminally negligent. Nobody has to tell you to do this. You have a brain. These wars have happened. When are you going to start being professional and do this? Mm -hmm. Get your drills together. Now, you say, I don't have any systems. All right, well, how about counter UAS? Let's talk about that for a second, just a simple one. Small UAS attack. Let's say the enemy was going to bring a dozen small UAS hobby drones to attack you with grenades on them. All right, what could you do? Well, first of all, you need detection. You need a detection system. You got a radar? No. You got an um, uh, audio uh, seeker of some kind that can listen to the sound of the... Uh, of the um, uh, buzzing of the drones. You probably could make one of those or find one of those, but okay, let's say no. So you don't got any equipment. All right, you put up some air guards. You have soldiers or Marines or sailors or airmen that are actually up there scanning the skies. Now, is that optimal? Would it be great to have more technology? Yes, but if you don't have it, don't give me an excuse for what you can't do. Do something that you can. So you have those people up looking. Now, can you attack those drones if they get close? Do you have any anti-drone guns? We do have some of these drone rifles that you can jam uh, drones with. 
they're not going to work very well in most cases because the drones are evolving and they're getting harder and harder to knock down with those single to purpose weapons. So you're going to have to probably take them down with kinetic effects. But what do you have? You don't have much. You can shoot your pistol all day and you probably won't knock one down. You can shoot your rifle all day and you probably won't knock one down. We need computerized sighting systems on our rifles to knock these things down. There's a system the Israelis developed called the Smash, which does precisely that. It makes almost every rifleman an expert marksman. Not that expensive, but it's expensive. So it's more than the cost of the rifle. So the question is, what are we going to do in the meantime? We've got to do something. You know, so we got to mask. We got to disperse. Make it harder for them to get at us. Think it through. Red team it. If you've done that, you've done your job as a leader. But how many leaders do that? And that's our challenge right now. And when they tell you they can't because of this, that, or that, when the war comes, what will they tell you? When their soldiers are dead, what will they tell you? And that's how we have to look at this. Sir, one of the domains that I want to want to hit up on, you know, is, you know, I'm a force manager, but I find space very fascinating. And you talk about it in your book. And, and quite frankly, I don't think there's enough out there on on this domain, you know, dig, digging into it and the utility of space. And without space, you know, you don't you don't have precision, right? You don't have deep communications beyond a lot of sight uh, in, you know, drone a utility of drones without without space. So I was wondering if you could talk up on that and, and how, how do you see space in, in the future of war, sir? Yeah, space is crucial. Space is the high ground. By the way, he who commands the stratosphere as well commands the ground. Now we don't think much of the stratosphere. So let's go from stratus let's go from from aviation space to stratosphere to space. So basically three layers in, in, in uh, very general terms. Aircraft operate to a certain level, then they can't breathe anymore, so they have to be rockets. Above that, you can get a couple of aircraft like the U-2 that can fly a little higher, but not much. That's also where balloons operate. We seen any balloons lately, let me think. Yeah. Mm. So the idea of operating balloons in the stratosphere, that's pretty... That's pretty um, uh, impressive 21st century warfare. It's not 18th century warfare. Those balloons are high tech. Imagine if you were going to conduct an urban operation and the first thing you did was you had six to 10 aerostats flying in the stratosphere above the city, announcing that you're there. Everybody looks up and you're commanding the sky with balloons mm -hmm. and they could stay right above the city. And what could you have on those balloons? Let's not even talk weapons. Let's just talk the ability to jam their comms, yep. to communicate yep. information down so that the only TV channel they got was yours, sensors. And then if you wanted to go weapons, there's all sorts of other things you could do on balloons. The Chinese, they know this. Um, the stratosphere is an untapped area. Who's in charge of the stratosphere? I'm not sure. No, no one. Yeah, sir. Yeah, I don't think space is, and I don't think the Air Force is. I think they would both say they are, <laughs> which means we got to figure this one out. Yeah. Now, I'm probably wrong here. Space Command has probably said it's theirs. I hope so. But somebody needs to understand who commands the stratosphere. Because in the 21st century, if you dominate the stratosphere, you can dominate communications, you can dominate jamming, 
and you can do other things. I mean, it, it, it could be absolutely very important to win. I mean, this is, this is something that we is untapped. Then you get into space. Now, we are blessed, very blessed, that we have companies like SpaceX that can put up 5,000 low Earth orbit satellites in less than three years. Mm -hmm. No other nation in the world could have done that. In fact, the United States couldn't do that. Wait a minute. What I mean is, is that the United States government could the government, do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, imagine if DOD had been given the mission to put 5,000 low Earth orbit uh, satellite Starlink satellites up in a constellation that in fact would maneuver, that would avoid things, all the things that went into that. What it would it cost and how long would it take? So we're blessed that we have the, uh, the genius of uh, the capitalist system and um, uh, companies like SpaceX and others, Andrew and others that can do amazing things with their technologies that would take uh, our big defense contractors and the U.S. government uh, decades to do. The Chinese are, de are worried very much about this. Now, they're copying SpaceX as best they can. They've just started to... Uh, create their own uh, um, uh, uh, second stage rocket boosters that fly back to Earth like, like uh, SpaceX has. They're starting to put up satellites into low Earth orbit for their own satellite system. But they're very worried about our Starlink capability. And now, of course, we have Star Shield. For those of you that don't know, Star Shield is the military version of Starlink that DOD's bought through SpaceX. And it is supposed to be uh, hyper-encrypted and difficult to jam and EMP proof and things like that. Now, exactly what it is is classified, so I don't know, but uh, it's supposed to be high-speed, low-drag for the Defense Department. So eventually we'll have that kind of stuff up, which other countries don't have. So in space, we have some great advantages. We should. I mean, we've been leading in space for years. We just gave a lot of our lead away to the Chinese uh, because we were asleep at the wheel. Now, who controls the moon is going to be crucial, too. Because mm. if you control the moon, you control the Earth. So the whole space thing is, is we have to start thinking of space the way Mahan thought about sea power. Uh. We, need, we need a new space Mahan to write the book on, on how dominating space matters. And then you see why different geographic regions matter. Mahan would talk about, you know, coaling stations and how islands mattered and different things and, 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 and uh, areas where there were choke points and things, how those mattered. Well, we have the same thing in space. Mm -hmm. The stratosphere is one. The moon is another. There's a whole bunch of other things out there. Uh, one of the things that I think we should do is that the United States should, should offer to the world the, um, uh, the option, not the option, but offer to the world the fact that we will clean up space debris in space and we should develop the space systems to go out there and clean up all the space junk and be able to move anything in space anywhere we want it to when we need it to but by being able to clean up the space junk that would be just a great mission for us because it would teach us how to move things in space the way we need to move things in space whether it was junk or not so we need to think through space and we need a mahan to write about how space is, in fact, the new high ground of 21st century war. And he who dominates space will dominate the Earth. Now, 
I'm not into domination of the earth, but I certainly would rather have the United States of America, uh, the dominant power there, than have uh, an autocratic government uh, like Russia or China, the dominant power. And for obvious reasons, like we talked earlier about with the atomic bomb. You know, imagine, for instance, if when we developed the atomic bomb, if we hadn't developed it first, if the Nazis had, how would the world look differently? Imagine if Joseph Stalin had got the bomb before we did, mm -hmm. or the Imperial Japanese Army. You know, imagine all of those things and the death and destruction and the world the way would, you know, the way the world would look today. So for all our faults, uh, we have been a benevolent power on the earth, and our whole job has been primarily to keep the, the world safe for commerce. And if we can continue to do that, we need to think about that in outer space, because the commerce that's going to be developing in outer space is going to grow and grow over the decades. Now, for the next 10 years, the most important thing about space will be its ability to impact uh, operations on Earth through the transparent battle space, and then if, in fact, somebody starts to arm satellites in space, which I believe the Chinese have probably already done and the Russians have already done because they've exploded satellites in space to destroy other satellites. So there's some indication that that's uh, more common than we think. If that starts to happen in greater numbers, then, then seeing how that occurs and how that, is, how that affects uh, the, the world beneath it is going to be critical. So space is... The idea of creating the Space Force was a, was a brilliant step and very important. We need a Space Force. Now, to go back down to Earth for a second, to show you how organizations need to, need to change, <clears throat> the U.S. Army needs to make a drone corps. Mm. Now, people will say, ah, the last thing we need is another branch. But I will tell you that if we're going to excite the imagination and get this thing moving in time, we need a drone corps. We need to start recruiting kids who want to fly drones. I'm not talking predators alone. You know, that's part of, that's the high-end stuff. I'm talking about first-person view, uh, you know, small UAS drones like we see in Ukraine. And then we need to be able to, to send them down at squad level, you know, to different units so that we can proliferate drones across the force. To be able to use these drones is no different than being able to form a machine gun team. Mm -hmm. You have to train with it. You have to understand it. You have to deploy it. We need people that are, this isn't just another piece of ammunition. We have right now the Black Hornet, the small UAS, micro UAS, nano UAS, that uh, some units use in their training. You may have heard of it, the Black Hornet. The bottom line is it's so damn expensive that most people are afraid to take it out of the arms room. Yeah. So when I ask soldiers how many of them have ever used a Black Hornet, nobody raises their hand. Now, I may be talking to the wrong group. Maybe everybody's using it and I just don't know it. The problem is, is that over 10,000 drones are used every month in the Ukrainian army alone in combat now. 10,000 a month are expended. Now, many of those are loitering munitions, first-person view drones, attack drones. But a lot of them are ISR drones that get knocked out. We don't have anywhere like that in our force. And we don't have loitering munitions down at, the, at, at any of our, our unit levels. Now, we can, we can, you know, the special forces can use loitering munitions, and we can provide loitering munitions, you know, to, to units as elements of, of uh, like, 
pieces of ammunition, but unless they're trained to use them and integrated into a system so that they can sense and strike, the capabilities of those become much less. We've got to start thinking through this. Artillery units, for instance, need to have dedicated small UAS and, and medium altitude um, uh, long endurance drones as part of their units. And we got to figure out how to do that. And they got to be simple, self-evident uh, to deploy and use, and relatively ease of maintenance. There are systems out there that we can do this with that are, that are coming up. A drone corps would help push all that. So I think we need a drone corps as much as we need the Space Force. Yes, sir. Uh, all right. One last question before I transition to the to the fun questions, the questions I ask every okay. every guest, regardless of uh, of the topic. And in this question, you know, as a, as a tanker, sir, I definitely want your perspective on it. And this has been brought up countless times. I mean, going back to 1973, the Yom Kippur War, maybe even bef beforehand, um, but resurfaced definitely in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, and then here again in in Ukraine and Russia. And you probably may know where I'm trying to go with this one, but is is the tank dead or is it just really bad tactics uh on the armenian side and, and on the russian side the way that we use tanks today is dead now after everybody gasped at that statement let me tell you <laughs> yeah. tanks are not dead tanks are a weapon system and it is the only system that can maneuver under fire and bring the battle to the enemy at the speed and with the, with the capability of shock and firepower that you need to have decisive maneuver. We like to say that we, you know, fire to maneuver. That in fact, maneuver is what we want to do, that we are a maneuver-oriented army and that we want to gain a decision and not be locked in positional warfare. Mm. You can't do that without tanks. But the way that we fight tanks today is wrong. Tanks need to be integrated now, just as we had to integrate tanks with infantry in World War II when the rise of the anti-tank uh, gun came about. I mean, initially in World War II, when the tanks came through, particularly the panzers of the German army, there weren't a lot of anti-tank guns out there that could knock them out. <clears throat> there were cannon. There were other tanks, but the infantry didn't have anything. I mean, they were so desperate that they had a thing called a piat. You know what a piat is? It was a grenade launched by a spring. Hmm. So you had this crossbow-like setup, and you launched with a spring, a grenade, at a tank. Hmm. Because that's how the technology was. So tanks were in the ascendancy. And, of course, that didn't last. Infantry started to get, you know, good bazookas now suddenly, and Panzerfoss. And that became a real big deal. And then pretty soon, guided missiles. Holy moly. Now the anti-tank guided missile came about, and we had to worry about that. Well, what about drones? You know, we integrated tanks with infantry in order to stop the anti-tank threat from infantry. Now we need to integrate tanks with infantry and drones and artillery and make a much more seamless organization. So bots before boots. The first thing forward is a robot. The first thing forward needs to be a series of flying small UAS that tells the tank platoon leader what's over the hill. We have a thing in, in armor called table eight. Okay. In other words, it's a tank qualification, you know, whether they've changed numbers or not, you know, uh, different tables doesn't matter. The point is, is that you have to go through qualification gates in order to qualify your tank crew. 
not one of those gates involves integrating with drones. We should have the tank commanders integrating immediately with drones to see where the target is. And we're going to have to start shooting beyond the horizon with some tanks. So we need, we need uh, rounds that shoot and sense and top attack like an Enlaw or a Javelin, an enemy tank that's over the hill. We've got to start shooting at farther ranges. We can do this today. We just haven't done it. And I know everything's expensive, but losing tanks and losing an offensive and, and dying is much more expensive. So there's a whole series of things that we need to do to develop what I call a new combined arms for armored warfare. And we need to start integrating robotic systems into our platoons. I see a day when there's maybe two tanks that are human operated and four tanks as part of the platoon that are all robots. And two of those tanks follow one and the other two follows the other. And they go where that other tank goes. They shoot where that other tank shoots and do what that tank commander asks them to do by voice command, just like they would a human. Now, they don't have to be that smart. They don't have to think on their own. All they have to do is go where he tells them to go. If he tells them to go over a cliff, he's a bad leader. Same thing like today. So we've got to think through armored warfare. We cannot push forward in an offensive and win without some tank-like vehicle. Whether it is, you know, 100 tons or 30 tons is part of the debate. You know, but we have got to have the ability to move under artillery fire, to move under fire, across the deadly ground, and impose our will on the enemy by maneuvering against them. So tanks are vital, and they are not dead. But the way we use tanks today is a is a sure recipe for disaster. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's great. Yeah, thanks, sir. Yeah, I just wanted your perspective on that. Um, and, and yeah, I definitely you, you start off with uh, the tank is dead. You know, <laughs> get the get the gas for the air. <laughs> um, yeah. all, all right, sir. You know, I'll wrap things up, and uh, you know, I want to conclude with uh, these series of questions that I ask every guest, re regardless of the topic. Um, and we we've talked about you know your books that you've authored, sir. But you know, I was wondering what is you know. What is your all-time favorite book, or if you have a book, you know, that you would recommend to the listeners um, as well? Yeah, my my favorite book is going to kind of surprise you. Uh, I have a list that I pass out of seven books that I ask hmm. that I think people should, you know, that I that I that I love. Whether you read them or not, it's up to you, but I love them. But my top book is the Iliad of Homer. Ah, okay, yes, sir. Now, the reason I like the Iliad is because it's about human beings. It's about leadership. It's about humans in, in, in tough situations. Uh, it's about ego. It's about greed. It's about, it's all the human virtues and, and, and uh, all of the human failings. And um, it is, uh, it's a reason that that book was the second most read book in the history of the Western world. Uh, the first being the Bible uh, is because the Iliad taught you um, how to lead it taught you uh, the virtues of, uh, of the Western civilization, and uh, it is worth reviewing. Uh, it, is, it is my favorite book, and I read it uh, often. Now, I have several other books that I love of my seven, and uh, second is Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. Mm -hmm. 
one of my very favorite books. And I think if you haven't read Once an Eagle, you need to read it because it's about soldiering and it's about soldiering for the right reasons. The next is, um, is uh, Leadership by Hal Moore, which goes beyond uh, his fight at the Iadrang Valley and uh, is just an amazing book. Hal Moore was one of our greatest uh, leaders and we need to mo know more about him. It's more than just Vietnam. What he did after Vietnam was just as important. Um, uh, a book that you might get a kick out of called uh, Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fun leadership book, and uh, it uh, uh, is really brilliant and entertaining at the same time. Of course, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Uh, and um, when you figure it out, tell me. But uh, I like uh, reading it because you can find something in it uh, for everyone. Yeah. Um, the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. Uh, yeah. John Maxwell is a good leadership coach, and uh, he's, um, he's written some great books. And this, uh, these 21 Irrefutable Laws are, are uh, something that uh, will, will help any leader, any emerging or veteran leader, sharpen their leadership. And then last, uh, but I, I say but not least, because it's, it's a book I probably go to more than most, is Barrett Groom's Ballads by Rudyard Kipling. Mm. You got to read a little poetry. Now, um, it, people might say Kipling poetry. Yeah, he was a poet and um, he wrote about soldiers. So uh, I enjoy reading Kipling. And I have had more than one session with a cigar and a scotch with my friends actually reading Kipling to them and, and them enjoying it. So um, uh, there's a, one, one particular uh, poem called Tommy that you may have heard about Tommy this and Tommy that and chuck him out the brute, but a savior of his country when the guns begin to shoot. <laughs> Tommy this and Tommy that and anything you please. And Tommy ain't no bloomin' fool. You bet that Tommy sees. Uh -huh. So it's it's good stuff. It's worth worth looking at. So those are my books. Huh, and I try to read. I try to read a lot. Uh, so I'm reading new books all the time. And um, uh, the uh, there's a lot of good ones out there, but those are my top seven for now. Very impressive, sir. Completely off of memory. I, I like that. That was that was great. Um, for the next question, you know, this this maybe you know really interesting because you know we've we've talked space, we've talked AI, we've talked drones, but you know, what emerging or future capability technology actually like worries you the most? What what, what what's keeping you up at night? Yeah, well, you heard my story about the nine disruptors. So, the nine disruptors. The first one is the transparent battle space, and the second one is the first strike advantage. Those are, are symbiotic. Any technology that facilitates the first strike worries me. So the Chinese development of a kill web and then used in the first strike, very concerned. Um, the ability of, of longer range missiles to sense and strike. You see, you don't have to have sensors now alone. You can have the sensors inside the missile. So what's interesting is that if you look at a spike long range, any tank guided missile, mm -hmm. you shoot it, it has a camera, it senses everything, you're watching the camera, the AI slows it down for you, so you can see it, the, the, the images if you want, and then you can direct it. So I have seen spike LR um, uh, operators move the missile from the first tank to the last tank because they wanted to kill the last tank first. So you're directing the fire with the sensor on the missile, sense and strike within its own system. So anything that, that facilitates first strike for the next war is what worries me because the target that sticks out gets hammered. 
and we don't want to stick out in the modern battle space. And I'm, I'm concerned right now that we are too vulnerable, too easy to kill all over the world. Awesome, sir. All right. Last final question, sir, is, um, you know, any advice, you know, any, any words of wisdom for our, our force managers, you know, staff officers? Yeah, you guys have a very important job and thank you for what you do. Every job is vital, but being able to create the force, you know, is fundamental. And that fundamental need is crucial for us to win anything. We need to think about some very hard subjects like mobilization. How would we mobilize if we had to? Not only our people, but our industry. Those kind of things are beyond your most uh, your your uh, your uh, areas, but nonetheless, those are things that get involved with the same kind of thing on a macro scale. So, I would say three things from a final comments. One, teamwork wins. You know, to be a good follower. Uh, is very important. Be a good follower if you want to become a good leader. Who do you pick when you pick someone to be a new leader? You pick someone who has been a good follower. You don't pick the person who always said no, who said it couldn't be done, who didn't want to do anything. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a yes man or a yes woman. What that means is that you have to work as hard to be a good follower as to be a good leader, and every one of us are followers. We all follow somebody. The next is ask the hard questions. You know, we have to think and then act. But before we think, we need to desperately ask the hard questions while we have the time. So ask the hard questions. How would I react with my team in this situation? How would we be able to beat uh, enemy uh, SUAS FPV drones coming in at us? How will I hide from the enemy and mask from the enemy artillery? Ask the hard questions. He who thinks wins, gain that foresight, develop that foresight, the ability to solve problems in the short term and then create solutions for the long run and you become a great leader. And then lastly, I think, um, you know, winning takes discipline and lots of repetitions. We have to train to habit. Uh, you know, again, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We all think we're going to do great, you know, but you fall to the level of your training. So if your training level is zero, you're a zero. Don't let your unit be a zero. Train them. Constructive, virtual, live. Figure out a way to train them. Don't take no for an answer. <clears throat> and last, do not, do not tell me that you can't do something. Tell me what you can do. Sir, all right, well... Sir, I can't thank you enough for for your time and and to go over, you know how how you see war now and and how you see the the future of war. Um, as always, you know, phenomenal presentation. Your your books are are great. I I really enjoy them, um, and I can't stress enough and highly encourage uh, you know my listeners to go out there and and, and get a copy uh, for themselves. Uh, that being said, sir, um, you know any any final comments from from you before we uh, sign off. Matt, thank you very much. Uh, we have a lot of good, very um, capable leaders out there trying to do their best. I just want to reinforce what they're doing and tell them don't take no for an answer and keep fighting hard because we're running out of time. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Hua, you take care. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes with senior force managers and subject matter experts on strategic readiness, the defense industry base, and the all-volunteer force. Management.